Welcome to the Peavine Podcast, where each week we bring you the message from our Sunday morning worship service with Pastor Joel Sutherland, so that we can help you apply biblical truth to your daily life. You can always join us in person each Sunday at 8.30 a.m. and 11 here on our beautiful campus in Rock Spring, Georgia. Great job, great job. Hey, Romans chapter 10, if you have your Bibles today, your digital device, the book of Romans is in the New Testament. Um, You'll find it after the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, Romans chapter 10. I started a sermon series a few weeks ago entitled The Mission. We're talking about what God wants us to do here at Peavine Baptist Church. So we have a mission. You have to uh, get this through your minds and into your heart today. Follow with me for just a second. God did not save you or me for us just to sit and wait to die. God did not save us, get this, hold on with me. For us to carry on with life as normal. God saved us and intended for it to be a pattern interrupt in our lives. Like here's this life-changing decision. Here's this life-changing transaction, the day you were saved. And because of that, God has given you a mission and he's placed you strategically in Peavine Church to help you do that mission. So we feel like around here that our mission can be summed up this way, reaching every person in Peavine City with the gospel. And so we've challenged, we feel like the first challenge is to reach 1%. And I know some of you are thinking, well, what about the other 99%? Well, we'll get there, but we're going to start with 1%, right? And maybe we can get some help from some other churches and they'll reach their 1%. But 1% for us is 4,970 people. Now, if you're here today and you're a guest, and you hear me say the term Peavine City, and you wonder what that means. Peavine City is a 20-mile radius from where you sit today. And so the, we just named that Peavine City. That's our local mission area. And so we're trying to reach every person in Peavine City with the gospel. Well, we're going to do that by being focused on a very few things. For example, we're going to be city-focused. It's not about filling a building. It's about reaching a city. We're going to be Sunday-focused because every Sunday is somebody's one day. Every Sunday, there's somebody sitting in our church services that people have been praying for them, inviting them, witnessing to them, and they happen to show up this Sunday, and you never know when that's going to be. Not only that, I would argue that every Sunday, there are people sitting in a church this size whose name is on the church roll, but they really don't know Christ as Savior. And so every Sunday, somebody's one day. So we're going to put a lot of work and effort into our Sundays and making them evangelistic. Well, the third thing I want to talk about today as we wrap up this series is we are gospel-focused. And here's what that means to us, that we're going to keep the main thing, the main thing, and that is sharing Christ and the gospel. So I want us to walk through that a little bit today. Now, here's what I want you to do before we get started. Everybody look this way, take a deep breath, and... Clear your minds, focus in. Matter of fact, I'm going to talk about focus in about five seconds, so I want you to focus in right here. I need you to do a couple things for me. Number one, if you're here today and you're a believer, I want you to get a name of a person who's far from God in your life, in your mind right now. We're going to do something with that later on in the service. So just get a name 
in your mind who, of a person who's far from God. Could be a family member, friend, coworker, uh, a neighbor, somebody you play ball with, somebody you go to school with, whatever. Just get that first name of that person in your mind. Secondly, I want you to think about, so when we talk about our new logo, you see it up there on the screen, uh, that little uh, pin dot, that darkened out corner in the middle represents your corner. Can I say this? It more accurately represents your corners. And your corners may be where you work, where you live, where you play, where you vacation. It may be who you're friends with, people online as part of your corners. So I want you to think about your corners. And I can't list everything that can be your corner, but I want you to think about your corner. We're going to do some of that later on. Get the name of a person far from God in your mind. Somebody needs to be in church. And then think about your corner. We're going to do something with that at the end of the sermon. But right now, focus in with me because I'm going to talk about focus. Researchers find that multitaskers perform poorly. So here's what you think. You think you can multitask, right? You think you can text while you drive, you can do it. You're the one person in the world that can do it, right? Everybody else is an idiot, but you can pull it off, right? Well, I have news for you. Well, um, you think you can watch television and read the Bible. You think you can check Instagram and listen to the preacher's sermon. No, you cannot. Reality, according to a team of researchers at Stanford University, University, multitasking causes big problems. Here's what they studied. That attention, they put out an article and the title was, Attention Multitaskers, Your Brain May Be in Trouble. They originally set out to discover what gave multitaskers special focus and the ability to multitask. But what they found out was they were surprised that multitasking did not increase performance as they thought. It impaired performance. Here's what they said. According to one of the researchers, everything distracts a multitasker. How many of you would consider yourself a multitasker? I I put myself in that category, right? And we're the people that go squirrel, right? That's us. (laughs) Everything distracts us. They discovered that multitaskers were also unorganized in their ability to keep and retrieve information. They even worse at the main thing that describes multitasking, switching from one task to the next. Heavy multitaskers underperformed in every area of the study. So they went to the University of Michigan and they had 300 students um, uh, 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 persevere through interruptions while taking a computer test. Get this. The interruptions came in the form of pop-ups that required the students to enter a code. So you're taking a test, a pop-up would pop up on the screen. It would say, enter code 782. You enter code 782 and then you went back to the test. In one case, the interruption lasted four seconds. In another case, the interruption lasted 2.8 seconds. Get this. With a 2.8 second interruption, the students made double the errors when they return to the test. For those with a four-second interruption, get this, the error rate quadrupled when they were interrupted for 4.4 seconds. Every research now bears that out. An Ohio State University study found that media multitasking, that is reading a book while watching TV, results in poor cognitive performance. Uh, University of Utah did a study and confirmed, get this, now pay attention, talking on the phone while driving 
How many of you think you're good at talking on the phone and driving? You're afraid to raise your hand now, right? You're afraid to raise your hand. Now, now we're not talking about texting. We're talking about talking on the phone and driving. Here's what they discovered. That it is as dangerous as driving drunk. That people who were talking on the phone and driving, listen, they missed billboards. That's okay. And they missed pedestrians who were walking in front of the car. That's not okay. And yet, despite all that evidence, doing more than one thing at a time, we still continue to do it. And here's how the research concluded. Don't miss this. Here's my sermon. By do, this is a secular sentence. By doing less, I quote, you might accomplish more. By doing less, you might accomplish more. Imagine that. By doing fewer things, you get more things done. Can I translate that for us as a church? If we, if we keep, let me just translate in your life. If you keep the main thing, the main thing, you will accomplish more of the main thing and then subsequently even other things. Now that's true in the church as well. When a church keeps the main thing, the main thing, there is no question in the Bible. There's no question whatsoever that the main thing is telling other people the gospel story. There is, there's no debating that. Jesus said it over and over, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. The last thing he told the church was recorded two different times. Uh, he said, go into all the world and preach the gospel. There is no doubt that the main thing is uh, sharing the gospel. And here's what that tells us, that if we keep the main thing, the main thing, sharing of the gospel, we'll accomplish more and get more done. Now get this. I give a talk sometimes uh, when I'm talking to pastors, and I say this, it's not about activity, it's about accomplishment. Can I say that if, if we're just concerned with activity, then you can stick your hands in anything and everything. But if you are concerned about accomplishment, you have to stay focused on the main thing. We are not here as a church. You are not here as a Christian just to be busy for Jesus. You are here as a Christian. We are here as a church to stay focused on the main thing. We are not here to uh, be, have a lot of activity. We are here to accomplish certain things. Because I want to remind you, remember this statement. If the devil can't make you bad, he'll make you busy. And if the devil can't make you bad or busy... He'll make you bicker. And the church, church can't afford either. You say, what do you mean by that, preacher? Well, here, here's what happened. If the devil can't get you to fall in sin, here's what he'll do. He'll just get you really busy so that you're, you, you relegate church, you relegate God, you re relegate Jesus to an activity you're trying to check off the list but you don't really care about. Well, preacher, we got so much going on. We got, we got to take kids everywhere, man, my, my job, and I, I got to do this, and I got to do that. And here's what happens. You get so busy, the first thing you leave out is God, because God never screams at you. God only whispers to you. And so the devil will say, all right, I can't get you to fall in sin. Look, I can't get you drunk. I can't get you to run around on your husband or wife. I can't get you to go do something you shouldn't do. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to get you really busy. Can I say this? Just as bad. And let me carry a step further. It's not the sermon today, but if he can't get you to do those, he'll get you to bicker. What do you mean? He'll, he'll, he'll try his best to get you and your, uh, your husband and wife in a fight. 
He'll try your best to come between you and your kids. He'll, 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 look, let me tell you what happened. If the devil can't make you bad, if he can't make you busy, he'll give you a reason not to like the preacher. Because he'll get you to bicker. That's all in the New Testament. But here, here's, what, here's what we have to discover as believers, that so many churches are busy. There used to be a book written called the 24-7 Church, which emphasized that a church ought to be doing something 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That is terrible. Because you'll wind up doing a whole bunch of things that don't matter for the kingdom of God. And that's the church the way we're used to it. Listen, we think something is wrong if a church doesn't have 100 things going on all the time. Uh, I tell this story around the nation when I talk to pastors, but I had a church come up to me uh, one time and they said, hey, preacher, we're going to give, I wasn't the pastor, I was guest speaker that day. And they said, preacher, we're going to give away an award this morning. I said, oh, that's awesome. I love recognizing people. What's the award for? They said, well, this particular ministry in our church, this past year, we spent $20,000 on that ministry and we had 10,000 man hours invested in that ministry. I said, that is incredible. How many people came to faith in Christ? And the guy, staff member, hung his head. And he said, one. And I said, you're, you're about to get in the pulpit and brag on $20,000, 10,000 man hours. And one kid came to, he said, well, we're, we're not even sure about that kid. He's the same one that got saved last year and the year before, so we're not sure. That is Activity. That is not keeping the main thing the main thing. Paul said this when he got to the Corinthian church. Now listen, uh, the book of Corinthians is the book after this, and Paul showed up at that church. And can I tell you something? If you think you've ever been a member of a bad church, you have never seen anything like Corinth. I mean, it was messed up beyond belief. There was sexual immorality, sexual sin. Church was being done wrong. They were getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. Like even if you use real grape juice, right? I mean, if you were to use real wine, which we don't do, it's only that much. How many times you got to pass the plate, right? I mean, what are you drinking, man? I mean, it was a messed up church. And Paul walks into the Corinth church, and here's what he said first off in 1 Corinthians 2.1. He said, for I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul walked into a messed up Corinthian church and he said, I've basically got one message and that message is the gospel. And so that's what we learn from Romans chapter 10. So would you stand with me in honor of reading God's word and I want to read some very specific, uh, really, you know most of these verses, you've heard them in multiple sermons over the years. And I just want to take and tie these six verses all into one sermon. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. And these verses so familiar, you hear me quote them often. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God is raising from the dead, you will be saved. Man, the glorious words. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made into salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. Verse 13, for whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall we, they call on him in whom they have not believed? 
How shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they preach unless they are sinned? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. Thank you. You may be seated. Hey, let me walk you through the text, make a couple of quick observations, and uh, challenge us this morning. Paul has been saying some hard things uh, about the Jews. He, he's been telling them truths which are difficult because he's writing to the Israelites who were living in Rome at the time. And the whole passage of Romans chapter 9 through verse 11 is a condemnation of the Jewish attitude towards religion. So having that backdrop, let me move into verse number 9 and talk about some of the most famous verses in the Bible. Because verse number 9, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart God is raising from the dead, you will be saved. Paul is telling us that salvation can only be received by faith. That faith does not earn a Savior. Faith accepts a Savior. All that is required on the act of the believer, on the act of the person is believing and proof of that believing is confessing him. Most translations render uh, that first phrase that if you confess the Lord Jesus or confess Jesus as Lord, the emphasis is on the Lordship of Christ. The emphasis is that you're going to follow Jesus as Lord, that you're turning from your own way of living and now you're turning to the way of God. Now don't miss this in verse number nine, the very heart of of salvation is the, of the gospel is resurrection. That we have to believe, you hear me say that all the time on Sundays, that you have to believe that God raised him from the dead. If God did not raise him from the dead, he is not the Savior, and if he's not the Savior, he cannot save. Salvation is to confess with your mouth the Lordship of Christ and believe in your heart of the resurrection. Believing always comes before confessing. But lack of confession indicates lack of faith. Don't miss that. You say, well, preacher, I've believed in my heart Jesus, but I've never told anyone. Well, hold on. If you have never confessed Christ as Lord in your life, then chances are you don't know him as Savior because the confession is part of the believing. Confession is first of all Godward, and then it's outward and manward. Heart trust and true confession cannot be separated. Believing with the heart is contrasted with intellectual belief. Listen, look this way. Churches are full of people who believe Jesus existed, who believe he died, who believe he rose again, and who believe everything the Bible says about him, but they've never had a relationship with him whatsoever. That is not salvation. Salvation is believing in your heart that God is raising from the dead. Those are the prerequisites. Salvation comes by faith, which inevitably causes the believer to confess Christ both in word and deed. And so you look at verse number 10, and it's a reiteration of the same thing. For the heart one believes unto righteousness, with the mouth confession is made into salvation. So there it is. You, you believe in your heart, in Christ, in his resurrection, and then proof of that belief is a confession of the Lordship of Christ in your life. You confess it first to God, and then you confess it outward to man. It could not be... A more matter of fact, this is where the church gets uh, some of their creeds from, is Romans 10, 9, and 10. Could not be a simpler creed of salvation than that. And in verse number 11, he goes into another aspect of it because he, he gives a word, he quotes scriptures from somewhere else, Isaiah, that, that, that has been controversial over the years. But here's, it's a simple verse. He said, whosoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Here's what that means. That those who meet God on the day of judgment wearing the free gift of the robe of Christ's righteousness will not be ashamed. 
that those who refuse the gift, refuse to put their trust in Christ, will show up for the judgment wearing their only, their own filthy rags, Isaiah calls them. And that is not the eternal standard. And they will spend eternity in a place called hell. So verse number 11 is very plain that when you put your heart in Jesus, so Paul is trying to convince Roman Jews who are following the law in order to be saved. And Paul says to them, if you keep putting your faith in the law, you're going to show up before God on judgment day and you're going to be condemned. And look, to a Jewish, they had 613 laws they were required to keep. And you didn't get a Jew to walk away from those 613 commandments on a whim. And Paul's telling them in verse number 11, well, guys, here's the truth. If you show up before God on judgment day and you're dependent upon you keeping the law, you're in trouble. But if you show up before God on judgment day and you have put your faith in the righteousness of Christ, you will not be ashamed. Verse number 12, he says something that for a Jewish man it's hard to hear. For there's no difference between the Jew and the Greek. The same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. Paul has already said in Romans chapter 3 that there is no difference between those two groups. Here's what he said in Romans chapter 3. He said there's no difference in regards to the guilt of sin. That the Jews are just as guilty as the Gentiles. That's most of us. In regards to sin. Paul said in Romans 3, for all have sinned. Jew and Gentile alike. Greek and Gentile. We've all sinned, Paul said in Romans 3, 23. And fallen short of the glory of God. Here's what that means. We're all in the same bad state. But now Paul takes on in verse number 12, and he puts it in a new light. In verse number 12, Paul says, but we're all in the same category because everyone can call upon the Lord to save him. And then he, re- he reemphasizes that in verse number 13. It's one of the most beautiful words of Scripture in the Bible. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Hey, look this way. Can I get an amen right there? You know why you need to say amen? Because that verse is one of the greatest promises in the Bible that God loves every person no matter his nationality or race. God is not willing that any person should perish, but he wants everybody to be saved. 2 Peter 3 verse 9, and God promises salvation to every man if the man will do but one thing, call upon the name of the Lord. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The word whoever means anyone and everyone no matter who they are. Whosoever means that any person can be saved no matter who they, they are. No matter, listen, how terrible a person in his circumstances may be, they can be saved. Say amen right there. Because I want to be honest with you. Listen, I, when I'm in my daily prayer time, I end with a note of thanksgiving every time I pray. And, and right in the middle of my prayer, my thanksgiving, I have thank God for saving me. You know why? Because he didn't have to do that. Without the grace of God in my life, without the mercy of God in my life, I'm just going to be honest with you, I'd have been a rough character by now. I really would have been. I'd have been been a rough character. And I'm so thankful that the word of God says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Then he goes on to verse 14. He said, if everyone who calls upon the Lord will be saved, it is important that everyone have the opportunity to hear. Apart from hearing the message, no one can believe. No one can believe, he says in verse 14, in whom they have not heard. Therefore, it is necessary that a messenger be sent. Get that. It is necessary that a messenger be sent. Someone must come preaching the good news. 
Now, verses 14 and 15 offend some people because they say, well, if people are going to get saved, they're going to get saved without my help. Well, that's not what God said. God said in verse 14 and 15 that it is necessary that they hear the gospel. And if somebody hears the gospel, it is necessary that they be sent. How can they pre, how can, look at verse 14. How shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him in whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? That doesn't mean the guy that stands in the pulpit. That means anybody bearing the good news. And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good, good things. Paul applied the verse to the bearers of the good news of the gospel. Matter of fact, if you... John Stott took all the verbs in this passage and he put them in reverse order and here's how they sound in reverse order. Christ sends preachers. Preachers preach. People hear. Hearers believe. Believers call. And those who call are saved. Man, what a beautiful story of the gospel. So I want us to take what Paul said about the gospel right there and literally most of my preaching was in my introduction. Let me give you three quick points about the gospel. Jot these down. Number one, you have to own it to offer it. We're talking about being gospel focused. We're talking about the gospel mattering. The first thing you need to know that Paul says is that you have to own it to offer it. This passage is about sharing the gospel. But Paul starts off in an interesting place. Paul starts off by making sure that you have the gospel in your own life. Paul starts off in verses 9, 10, 13, and Paul is telling us that before he talks about sharing the gospel, Paul said, I want you to make sure that you have the gospel. That is, you're never going to share what you do not own. You're never going to be enthusiastic about reaching out to a lost and dying world unless you have Christ as your Savior as well. And I just want to say to you this morning, and I want to say it kindly, the reason many people in the church are not sharing the gospel is they don't have it themselves. Hey, can you look this way? Let me say that again. The reason many people in the church never care about sharing the gospel is they don't have it themselves. And I want to be honest with you. The reason we want to do so many other things in the church is that we don't own the gospel message. We aren't believers ourselves. The people in the church are not saved. Now, look, look here. Man, you're at the 830 service. <laughs> if I got a crowd that loves Jesus, it's this one, right? 830 in the rain on Sunday morning. Like I, I get it. Thank you. But I'm not saying you're not a good person. I'm not saying you're not a church member. I'm not saying that you don't give when the offering plate comes by. I'm not saying you don't have a place where you serve in the church. I'm saying you you don't know the Jesus we're talking about. And I want to be, listen, I don't want anybody in my ministry to not hear this bell rung plainly. That Jesus is the one that said, listen to me, these are not the words of a preacher. This burdens my heart. You've got to hear me. Jesus is the one that said to me, said, said in the Bible, many will say unto me into that day, Lord, Lord, have we not? Do you hear that? There are going to be an enormous millions and millions of people who stand before God one day 
And they are on the wrong side of judgment. Because there's two. There's the Bema Seat of Christ where Christians go. There's the great white throne of judgment where the lost goes. And you're going to find yourself standing at the great white throne of judgment wondering what went wrong. And when God said, you're, I don't know you, you're going to say, but wait, God. I was a member at the Baptist church. I helped in kids' ministry. I sung in the choir. I greeted in the parking lot. God, I gave my tithe. And God's, you're going to have this long list of things you did. God, I came to the 830 worship service in the rain. Anybody saved? Jesus is going to say, yeah, you did. But I'm not calling the church roll. I'm not calling out a list of workers. I'm not calling out a list of people who gave. I'm calling out names who have been written in the Lamb's book of life. And the reason there are many people today uh, in church, not just this church, churches all over who are not sharing the gospel, who don't never invite anybody to church, who, doesn't, who, who really don't care if people go to heaven or not because the fact of the matter is it's never on your mind because if you don't own it, you'll never offer it. I don't know if you've know, heard the name George C. Parker or not, but he was the greatest con man in American history. George C. Parker lived in the late 1800s and George C. Parker con man was able to sell the Madison Square Garden Gardens. He sold the Statue of Liberty. And the thing he's most famous for is selling the Brooklyn Bridge over and over and over again. As a matter of fact, George C. Parker sold the Brooklyn Bridge at least twice a week for years. Now, we're talking about 1800s. One time sold it as much for $50,000. As a matter of fact, the police often would have to stop uh, people he had sold the bridge to from setting up toll booths in the middle of the bridge. Get, get this. Some guy be carrying a toll booth, be going to the middle of the Brooklyn Bridge. And the police say, what are you doing? They say, well, I bought the bridge yesterday, and I'm going to set up a toll booth here so I can collect money. And they say, you can't buy the bridge. Well, George C. Parker sold it. By the age of 20, he had already forged a career selling famous landmarks to tourists and immigrants. In 1883, shortly after Brooklyn Bridge was completed, George met a tourist who had just arrived from Europe and introduced himself as the overstressed owner of the new bridge. He explains that he wasn't interested in setting up toll booths and he had other businesses and bridges he wanted to build. And so the tourists bought the story and the bridge for a bargain price and began erecting booths all over the bridge the next day, only for the priest, police to arrive and explain to the buyer that he had been had. But George kept selling the booth at least twice a week for years and years. He perfected his scam. He would give, I love this. I mean, it's wrong. He shouldn't do it, but I love it. <laughs> he would give a small cut of his sales to boat and ferry operators, bribing them to tell cash-carrying people that, uh, he said, I tell you what I'll do. You're new to America? Here's what the boat operators say. New to America? I tell you what you'll do. You ought to buy that Brooklyn Bridge. That'd be a great investment. I know the guy selling it. George Parker would put professional for sale signs around the bridge every day. And during 30 plus years, 
He sold the bridge on average twice a week. He was arrested three times, finally, in 1928. He landed in prison for the rest of his life. I love that story. That's a sad story. <laughs> and, and, and look, chances are you might be a millionaire today if your forefathers hadn't spent all their money buying the Brooklyn Bridge. I, you ought to trace that back. You probably got a family member that came over from Europe, uh, 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 got off a boat and bought the Brooklyn Bridge and had millions to his name. I love that story, but here's the problem with it. He couldn't offer it for sale because he didn't own it. He can't give it away if you don't have it. I want to be honest with you, you've got to make sure you have the gospel because it could be that you aren't as excited about sharing it because you aren't sure you have it. And my primary question is today, do you know Christ? Are you for certain you are a believer? Because when you know Jesus, you won't invite people to church. When you know Jesus, you want to tell them about the gospel. When you know Jesus, you've got a heart for the lost. And I'm not condemning you today. I'm trying to help you and tell you, listen, you need to know Christ. Paul said, you can't offer it if you don't own it. You need to take care of that today. Second thing this tells us about the gospel mattering. Number two, Paul told us that the call is for all. Verse 13, Paul said this, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. See, now you had a bunch of Jewish believers or wannabe believers who were upset that a Gentile could be saved. Imagine that. There were a bunch of Gentile, there were a bunch of Jewish believers who if a Roman got saved, they got angry. They would say, well, Paul, I thought we were the chosen nation. And Paul would say, well, I got good news for you. Uh, well, depending on how you look at it, whether it's good news. Paul would say, verse 13, quoting Isaiah, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. You know what that means? Any person, any nationality, any race, any color. It means any environment, condition, background, country, government, or family. It means any person, whether immoral, immoral, unjust, or just, bad or good, poor or wealthy, mean or nice, lonely or befriended, unpopular or popular, deformed or attractive, diseased or healthy, needful or without need. Listen, they can be saved. The gospel is not for a selected elected. It is for whosoever will may come. 1 Timothy 2, verse 4, jot this verse down in your notes. Paul said about God, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Can I tell you the good news of the gospel is this morning the Bible is plain. The call to salvation is for all. That's why the gospel matters. That's why we have to stay gospel focused because everyone needs to hear. We've, we've got the solemn assembly after this uh, after the service, we, we really encourage you to come down. The rain will stop. You'll be fine. You won't. I, most, I know most of you are not made out of sugar anyway. You'll be fine walking down there. That's a joke. Um, here's the deal. We have coffee and donuts down there for you. Now, here's the deal. I have poisoned some of them. But don't worry. I have told a few select people which ones are poisoned. If I've not told you which ones are poisoned, raise your hand. If I've not told you. Yeah, you'll be fine. Don't worry about it. Because I've told the ones I want to live who are poison. Let me ask you a question. 
Is that acceptable? Does that even sound nice? Does that sound, would you, if I did that, would you say, that's the most gracious, merciful guy I've ever met? Would you say that? No, you wouldn't. Well, why do we say that about God then for those who think only a few get in? Can I tell you this? God's nicer than me, God's more gracious than me, and God's more merciful than me. And if I'm going to tell everybody, if I'm going to encourage you not to eat the poison donuts, they're not poison. Matter of fact, they're the opposite of poison. They're Krispy Kreme, so they're heavenly. <laughs> I'm convinced that was the manna in the Old Testament was a Krispy Kreme donut. Right? Listen, I'm just a frail human full of sin. I say mean things about the University of Tennessee, and now I'm going to start saying mean things about the University of Alabama. I mean, I'm, I'm a frail person filled with sin. And I'd tell everybody, well, why in the world do we believe God wouldn't do the same? Can I tell you, the message of the gospel is for all, and the gospel message matters because all who hear may be saved, and all who don't will spend eternity in a place called hell. You say, well, preacher, what about those who live and die and never heard the gospel? Won't they be saved? No, they won't be saved. If that were the case, if ignorance was an excuse of salvation, the best thing we could do is burn every Bible, burn every church, outlaw the name of Christ, and never let it be said. But that's not what God said. God said, listen, I need you to get out and go into all the world and preach the gospel because the call is for all to be saved. Third thing, and I'm finished. Third thing he says is the message is in mono. Let me explain. Verse number 15. How shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who talk about church. No. How beautiful are the feet of those who do one thing. Preach the gospel of peace. Paul then states how important it is for the world to hear the one message, the message of the gospel. Will you close your Bibles and look this way and let me finish? Just You won't need to take any more notes, but get this. There's a lot we as Christians could talk about to a lost and dying world. We could talk about the fellowship of the church, right? Like we love one another. Man, we like church. We talk about how great the music is at church, and y'all do all those things. We could dive in deep into theological dissertations, but here's what Paul said do. Paul said, when you have the opportunity to talk to somebody far from God, do this. Deliver one message. What message is that, Paul? The gospel. A lost world needs to hear a church and a believer be singular in its message and preach the gospel. Can I say to you the one message that will ring out loud and clear from Peavine Church to Peavine City is the gospel. Hey, you've heard it said. You've heard people talking about church, and they say, boy, I love that church. Their music is awesome. Listen, I think our music is awesome. You've heard people say, well, I, I tell you what, I, I, I love that church because um, that preacher is the best preacher in the world. Oh, shucks, you don't have to say that about me. Man, that's embarrassing this morning. Let me tell you what I won't say about Peavine. Man, let me tell you what about that Peavine church. People get saved when they go to that church. 
People come to faith in Christ. Man, the lost person can't stand it there. Those those P-Vine members, they're out telling everybody. They're out inviting people to church. They're out telling people about Jesus. That is exactly what Paul wanted us to do. That's why he said the message is in mono. And listen, when a church is busy talking about everything else other than the gospel, it's never going to be effective. You heard the story. I'm finished. You heard about the, I mean, unless you've been under a rock, you heard about the Hawaii false missile alert, right? You heard about that? Lord, love their hearts. They sent out that false missile alert, and, and, and listen, they didn't correct it for 38 minutes. Incoming missiles. People picked up their phone and made their last goodbye to their loved ones. The, the governor uh, blamed it on someone who pushed the wrong button, but come to find out that he pushed the button on purpose. Because following standard procedures, the night shift supervisor posing as Pacific Command played a recorded message to the emergency workers warning them of the fake threat. The message included the phrase, exercise, exercise, exercise. But the message inaccurately included the phrase, this is not a drill. So when you do an exercise, you're not supposed to say, this is not a drill. The worker who was responsible for hitting the button was apparently drinking his coffee during the exercise portion of the announcement. And all he heard was, this is not a drill. So he reached over, which I'm thankful he did, right? Like, if you're going to make a mistake, err on the side of caution. And he hit the message alert. It went out for 38 minutes. Why'd that mistake happen? I'll tell you why. They shouted out two messages instead of one. It's just plain and simple. Exercise, exercise, exercise. And this is not a drill. Cause the mistake. May I say to you that a lot of churches get caught up doing things that aren't about the gospel? Good things. I'm not talking about bad things. Good things. But non-gospel Why would we do that? Listen, Paul intended for the message to be in mono coming from the church. That's why we're here. Didn't you remember the old song? We have heard the joyful sound. Jesus saves, Jesus saves. Spread the tidings all around. Jesus saves, Jesus saves. That is the message in mono. Do you have a name of a lost person in your mind? Stand with me across the building. I told you to get a name in your mind of a person that's far from God. I ask you, if you wouldn't mind, to think about where your corner is. What is their name? Where's your corner? I want you to think about it for just a second. If you're comfortable doing so, I want you to stop what you're thinking about just for a moment and look at the person next to you and tell them the name. Would you do that just real quickly? Come right back to me. Look at the person next to you. I told you have a name ready. If you can't think of a name, tell them where your corner is. Just whisper a first name. Don't give anybody a last name. Just tell them your name. I currently have seven different people on my lost list. I pray for 
Seven different names. Some of those I can witness to. Some of those I cannot. They, are, they don't live in a proximity to me where I can witness to them anymore. But that name you just told somebody ought to be inscribed in your heart. And I want to be honest. One reason we don't get so excited about inviting them to church and telling them about Jesus and the gospel is you're not going to offer what you don't own. Some of you here today, today's the day you need to settle that issue, come to faith in Christ. Some of you need to realize the call is for all because I'm going to be honest with you. Some of you work with somebody, you got a family member, and in your heart, you don't really think God could save them. When we say they're far from God, they are far from God. You know what I'm saying? They can be saved. So you bow your heads with me and close your eyes. Matter of fact, I want everybody in the building, if you would, to get that connection card and put it in your hand while you're standing there. Just hold it in your hand. That's such an important card for us every Sunday. Please fill that out every week. Take that connection card, put it in your hand, and then just come right back to me. If you're here today and you don't know Christ as your Savior, today's the day to do that. Today's the day to settle that. I'm going to lead you in a prayer. You can probably play without me, but some of you can't. You, don't know, you wouldn't know how to talk to God. And I want to help you talk to God today. It's not the words you say. It's the intent of your heart is to trust Jesus as your Savior. You can pray out loud or in your heart. You, you, you're going to have to confess it eventually, but you're going to have to pray out loud in your, in your heart. And you can pray with me just now. If you'd like to be saved this morning, pray with me. Dear Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner and can't save myself. I know that Christ died on the cross for my sins. And he rose again on the third day. I believe that. And just now, I invite Christ into my heart and life to save me, forgive me of my sin, and to give me a home in heaven. I trust Jesus and Jesus alone. So while our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. We hope that you've enjoyed the message this week, helping you to apply God's word to your daily life. For more information about Peavine, be sure to check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and at our website, www.peavine.org. Thanks for listening.